0: Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that you help us to understand the words of Jesus, for they tell us of the times we live and the future we face and what we need to do. Uh, Even for those who are strong among us, we pray that these words will teach us further urgency of what we need to do. And for those who do not yet know Jesus, dear Father, we pray that these words will truly impact their hearts. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can I read the, the newspaper every morning? And uh, the newspaper is called The Straits Times. The Straits Times. Now, I never really quite uh, thought about the title until I prepared the sermon today. But I wonder whether we... I mean, I, I never quite thought about it myself. But I wonder whether we thought, have ever thought of what The Straits Times Means, why do they call the newspaper the Straits Times instead of the Today paper, right? Or my paper. Why is it called the Straits Times? And I think that it's called the Straits Times because originally it was for the people living in the Straits of Malacca, right? So, the Straits Times is for, like, the people living in this part of the world. And it's the times because it refers to what is happening in our time. And today, as we look at uh, the passage that Jesus talks about, it's all about really time, the times that we live in. But it's so much more important than the Straits Times. Uh, Unfortunately, for those of you who work for SPH or anything, right? Because the times that Jesus is talking about here talks about not just the times that are relevant for people living in the Straits of Malacca, but for people of all places, everywhere. It is universal news. It needs to be heard by everyone. And also, the times are not just the times that we live in today, it speaks of time to the very end of time and what happens then. So all the more we need to really pay attention and listen just as the people in those days needed to listen to Jesus because what Jesus says is so important for all of us for all of time. So he begins in verse 49 by saying, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, in this very first sentence, Jesus says a very shocking thing. He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were really kindled. Now, the word fire here doesn't mean that Jesus has come to bring uh, a barbecue fire or a campfire because the fire within the, the book of Luke, within the context of the Bible, always speaks of judgment, always speaks of judgment, right? So, if you look up here, uh, three times in uh, the book of Luke already, the idea of fire has been mentioned, twice by John the Baptist and once by the disciples. And every time, the fire refers to the fire of judgment and of condemnation and the wrath of God. And that's what's so amazing, isn't it? Because we often see Jesus as you know, the meek and mild, loving Jesus. You know, He is like the baby of Christmas. He is the one who is coming to bring peace on earth. But look at what it says here in verse 49. Jesus desires to bring fire on the earth and he wishes that it was already kindled. He wishes that judgment and condemnation and the wrath of God had already come. Now what a shocking thing, isn't it? Because it shows us that that is the, the future that we all have to face. That is the future that Jesus is going to bring and the future that God desires to bring through Jesus Christ. Thank God then, in verse 50, that Jesus says, but, because you know, this is one of the most important buts in the Bible, I have a baptism to undergo. uh, undergo." And what he's saying here is that Jesus has to undergo something and therefore he cannot bring judgment onto the world. Now, if you've been following the series on the book of Luke, you'll know that in chapter 3, John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus Christ, right? Remember? John the Baptist had baptized Jesus so why is Jesus talking here about how he has another baptism to undergo? You don't get baptized twice. You only need to be baptized once. Well, baptism literally is the symbol of being uh, dunked underwater, right? I mean, that's what they did in those days. You know, you, you go underwater when you're baptized. Okay, I, I mean, I didn't put this in my uh, sermon, but I remember how a friend of mine, um, we, we we got baptized in this swimming pool, and I was being baptized with him. And when he was being baptized, he had an expensive wristwatch, so he kept his watch up in the air. I think some of, I think Robert and Nora remembers this incident, right? So he was underneath and he kept putting his hand up. So I remember the pastor pushed his hand under the water <laughs> with his expensive wristwatch. But see, that's the image of uh, baptism, right? To be dunked under water. But in the Old Testament, this image of being put underwater is also an image of being overwhelmed by suffering and disaster and catastrophe. Uh, you can look it up yourself. Uh, I I don't have time to look at it today, but in Job chapter 22, verse 11, in Psalm chapter 69, verse 2, and verse 15, and Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, there is this picture of being overwhelmed by the flood of disaster and suffering and catastrophe. So Jesus says here, when he says, I have a baptism to undergo, he's actually looking forward to the cross where he will be overwhelmed with the judgment of God, overwhelmed with the condemnation that God is going to place upon him. And that's why he says that he is distressed. Right? He is constrained until it is completed. So what time do we live in? We live, obviously, in a time between the cross of Jesus Christ and the judgment that Jesus is going to bring, the fire that Jesus is going to bring. That is the time that we live in. That is the way God and Jesus sees our time. right? We're not living in the time before the Champions League you no know, clash between Manu and Barcelona. No, no, that's not the real time we're living in. We're living in the time between the salvation of the cross and the fire that Jesus is going to bring. And what will this in-between time be like? Well, in verse 51 to 53, it says that it's going to be a time of division. It says here in verse 51, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and so on and so forth. Now, as we've been reading uh, the book of uh, Luke, we see that Jesus, in the last chapter, in the context of last week, spoke of the great demands required in following Jesus. Right? Remember last week, if you just turn over to chapter, uh, to chapter 12, right? just look back at chapter 12, Jesus kept saying, that if you wanted to follow Him, right, you had to give up everything. You, you, you had to choose to be acknowledged by Jesus rather than to be acknowledged by the world. You had to choose to seek God and uh, the Kingdom of God instead of following the things which the world finds important, like money and, uh, and possessions and luxuries. Uh, Jesus said, Do not fear man, but fear God. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you choose to follow Jesus, it will result in division and opposition from the world at the most fundamental intimate level, which is even in the family level. Now, why does Jesus tell us this? He's telling us this because if we are to live in the times and to keep persevering in Jesus Christ, we need to know what this time will bring for us as Christians. And as Christians, if we are loyal to Jesus, if we hold on to the values of the Kingdom of God, we will face opposition and division from this world. Uh, Now for yourselves, when you face that difficult time of opposition and division in the world, how will you respond? Will you give up on Jesus? Will you tone down your faithfulness to Jesus? Will you cool off on following Jesus? That is the warning that Jesus is giving us. Now I remember when I first became a Christian, my parents were—they were quite okay about it. They were quite—they were quite uh, neutral about it. But when I told my parents that I wanted to do full-time Christian work, well, I think that's when the division and the hardship happened for me. Okay. Uh, my my father didn't speak to me for a year and a half. Basically, he just gave me the cold shoulder. I—I I don't know how many words, but he didn't speak very much to me in that first year and a half. When I went to study in theological college. In Australia. Uh, we got, I got no financial support from them. I remember during that time, my, my, my father bought my sister a BMW in Australia and uh, I had to buy a second-hand Toyota by myself with my own money. And when I was in my rented flat, my theological college friends helped me to set it up. But my father didn't even come to visit me. Now obviously uh, that's not what I wish for all of you, right? But what I'm saying is that that is the reality of Christian life, if you take a stand for Jesus and you make difficult decisions based on your loyalty to Jesus, it might actually come up to division and opposition from the closest relationships in your life. But even so, Jesus says that you must keep persevering in Him because those are the times that we live in. If you know the fire of judgment is coming, you know that Jesus has died on the cross, well you need to keep holding on to Jesus. Now it keeps going on by saying in verse 54, Jesus then addresses the crowd and He, he, he sort of says this strange thing. He says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain and it does. When the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot and it is. Now obviously we are not familiar with what was happening there because we live in Singapore and uh, north, south, east, west is all the same. But um, in those days, if you lived in, uh, in Israel... If you saw a cloud in the west, that means that you saw the cloud building up over the sea. And you know that if the cloud comes over the land, it would rain because it was bringing moisture from the ocean to the land. So you can interpret the weather. If you could feel the wind coming up from the north, sorry from the south, you know that that's where the desert is. Okay? That's where the desert is and you know that it's going to be hot and it is. So you know how to interpret the weather. So Jesus says, look, if you can interpret the weather and you're so good at it because you get two out of two, right? Then why can't you interpret the times you live in? Because the times is more important than the weather. And Jesus challenges them and he gives them quite a complex parable. He says, "Um, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And basically what he's saying is, make the right call, right? Just tell me what you think is the right thing to do in this situation, As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid your last penny. So Jesus gives this illustration about how uh, you owe money to somebody, your adversary. Okay, It's probably a monetary debt, that is being mentioned here because in verse 59 it says, you will not get out until you paid your last penny. So you owe money to somebody, okay? And that somebody, that your adversary, has taken you from your house and is bringing you to court. Now when you go to court, you know that you have no money, so you are unable to pay your debt. What will happen to you? You will end up in prison for a very long time, probably forever, until you pay that debt, but you have no money and you have no friends to help you pay for it. So, Jesus is saying to the crowd, What is the right call? What is the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to be reconciled with your adversary as you are walking from your house to the court. And what Jesus is saying here is that this is the time that we live in. It is a short time where we can reconcile with our adversary, it is a short journey from our house to the courthouse and this is the time where we need to reconcile with God. Now what is happening here is he's saying if you look at this parable and think about it carefully, we are the ones who have the debt. We are the ones who have the unpayable debt, who are unable to pay for our debt and we are walking with our adversary from our house to the court. It's not very far It's not a very long distance. It's a very short time to reconcile. And if that is the time, then what is the right thing to do? We need to reconcile with God now before we get put in prison, the prison of hell, the punishment of hell, forever and ever. And the only way to reconcile with God is to follow Jesus. See, that's what the parable is all about. He's saying to the crowd, He's saying to us, we are like this person, We owe God a great debt and the time of judgment is coming. We are being brought to court. So in this short time before we are brought to court, take the opportunity to be reconciled with God. The only way to do that is to accept Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, the window of opportunity to be reconciled with God is a very, very small one. Uh, he uses its illustration, and if you think about it, the town is not very big. Okay? It's not like Singapore. I mean, well, Maybe it is like Singapore, I don't know. But the, the journey from your house to the court is a short time. Right? You've left it very late to reconcile with your adversary. And Jesus is saying to the crowd, this is the time that you live in. The very, very small opportunity you have to be reconciled by God before you are brought before the judge and sent to hell forever and ever. So therefore, what is the right thing to do? What is, what is the right call? Be reconciled with God now. Follow Jesus. Choose to follow Jesus and have your debt reconciled before it is too late. Now I know for some of you who are sitting here, you're not really reconciled to God yet. I think you, you come to church You know the Bible. You know who you are. The time to be reconciled with God is now. The time is short. Seize the opportunity urgently. Don't say to yourself, I can reconcile with God tomorrow, next year, the year after that. Because this is the warning of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is saying, this is the time that you live in. You're being brought to court. Prison is just over there. You need to be reconciled today. Jesus then goes on and uh, he, he's asked an interesting question, right? Um, in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, at this very present time where Jesus is t- telling the crowd about this parable, there was some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, what was the news of the day? What was the news in the Jerusalem times of that day? Well, there were the two, uh, uh, I guess, hot topics of the day, right? The lead stories on the first page. And one was of a story of where there were innocent civilians who were making their way up to the temple to worship God, sacrifice to God. And somehow they got caught up in some riot or some rebellion and the civil, civilian police or the army police came and put these people to death. Okay, They got caught up. We don't know what happened exactly but we do know that these people died as they went on their way to worship God. Another story was of a construction accident where this tower, for whatever reason, fell down and killed 18 people. And the popular understanding of the day would be why did these things happen? Why did these innocent people die on the way to church on a Sunday morning? And why did these people die when the tower fell on them, when they were having a picnic? And the popular understanding of the day probably was, as if you read the feedback section of the newspaper or the editorial or the, you know, the letters on the internet or whatever, was that these people must have been sinful, especially sinful, and that was why God was punishing them. But look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus interprets this event as. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Well, the crowd would probably think, Yes. Or in verse 4, "Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And again, the crowd would have probably thought, Yes, they were probably more guilty. But look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 2, I tell, sorry, verse 3, I tell you no, they were not more guilty. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. On verse 5, I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, the problem of the crowd in that day is the problem that we have today. The crowd thought that they were good people. Just like many people today think that they are good people. So they look at the, 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 these people who were killed, the 18 people who were killed when the tower fell on them. They look at these people who were killed when they went to worship at the temple and they think these were the bad people and I'm not like that. I'm a good person. You know, today, uh, whenever I try to evangelize some people, they use the same argument. You know, I, I don't really need Jesus because I'm a good person. I'm not like, you know, that guy in America who went and shoot everybody. I'm not like that. I'm not like those people in India who went and raped and killed that woman. No, I'm not like that. So, I'm a good person and God thinks that, you know, God, God likes me, I'm a good person. Like George Bernard Shaw said, I will pay for my own sins. Thank you very much. Because I'm a good person. But Jesus says twice that everyone, the whole crowd is equally as bad a sinner, as equally guilty as these people were killed. Right? What he says is that everyone needs to repent. That there are no good or bad. Everyone is bad. And all of them need to repent. Now I want you to pay attention in verse 4. right? See, look at verse 4. It says, Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And actually it's interesting because the word here, do you think they were more guilty, it literally is the meaning, do you think that they owed more debt to God? Do you think that they were, more, they were greater debtors to God because of their sin? And that actually brings us back to the original parable in verse 57 to 59, isn't it? Because all of the people, you know, he was saying, what is the time? It is a time where you owe a debt to God and you're making your way to prison. So Jesus is saying, do you think that these people who died on their way to the temple, these people who got killed when the tower fell on them, they are greater debtors than you are? And he's saying, no. Everyone is equally a debtor to God and they need to be reconciled to God before the fire comes down from heaven and it is too late and you are sent to the prison of hell forever. See, Jesus is making the very same point. And the point is, everyone needs to seize the opportunity to repent before it is too late. It was too late for those 18 people when the tower fell down. It was too late for those people who died on the way to the temple. Seize the opportunity to repent. Jesus then goes on in verse 6. And he tells them a parable. He likes telling parables, right? You notice he tells them something and he tells them a parable. In verse 6, he says, Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, but haven't found any. Cut it down, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now again, it is again a picture of urgency. The the fig tree, uh, fig tree is usually a symbol of Israel, had been planted in this uh, vineyard and it had been planted there and growing for three years. Uh, In the vineyard it would have been tended, protected, looked after, given fertilizer, all sorts of things. But for three years, no fruit. Now this is obviously a problem because fig trees are meant to bear fruit every year. So that means this fig tree has been given three chances to bear fruit and it has failed to bear fruit every time. So of course the owner is getting really fed up right because that fig tree is taking up valuable resources, the soil, he could plant something else, he could plant a palm tree or coconut tree for all he he cares right. So he wants to cut it down, but the vine dresser, the man who looks after the vineyard itself, says to the owner, Look, give this tree one more chance, one more year to bear fruit. Again, this is a parable of time. Time is running out for the fig tree. It has only got one more chance to bear fruit. One year left to bear fruit. He had three years, and now it's only got one. And the lesson is the same as the other parable the time is short. You've had three years, now you've got one year left. You've had three chances, now you've only got one. And it's a lesson to the crowd that they need to repent. But not just repent, but to bear fruit in their lives in keeping with that repentance. See, this is exactly what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, right? So if you look up here, John had uh, criticized the crowd and he said, look, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, So repentance and fruit tie in together. You cannot just say, I repent, I repent. But your life must actually bear the fruit of repentance. But notice what happens in verse uh, 9 onwards. He says that the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So if we understand the imagery here and we understand the imagery that Jesus talks about when the year is up and the fig tree fails to bear fruit, when the tree is cut down, it is literally the end. That is the end. No, that's it. No more chances. You get thrown into the fire. You get thrown into the fires of hell. So that's a very scary picture, isn't it? You only have one year left to bear fruit. There is only a short time to repent. So don't procrastinate because the consequences are, are tragic. You will perish or you'll be cut down. Now, I'm going to skip the next section about the crippled woman on the Sabbath and the mustard seed in the east. I hope that you did in your Bible study, but I want to come just to the last section of verse 22 to 30 because I think this is where Jesus wraps up this whole idea about time and the importance of time. So in verse 22, Jesus was going through the towns and villages, teaching on his way to Jerusalem, and someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now why would someone ask Jesus that question, are only a few people going to be saved? It probably is because this person has been walking and listening to Jesus, and he realized that the time is short. The time is short. So he's asking, well, if the time is short... And there's so much urgency, how many people are going to be saved? And Jesus says this really shocking thing, isn't it? He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. So the answer to the question is yes, many people will try to enter through the narrow door to be saved and go into the kingdom of God, but they will not be able to. And why will not they be able to? Because they are procrastinators. Because Jesus says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, that you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. See, why is it many people will not go in? It is because they have procrastinated and they haven't entered to the narrow door, which is Jesus Christ. When Jesus says make every effort, he's literally saying, don't, don't let anything distract you from entering into that narrow door. To find entry into the kingdom of God, to accept me. He's not saying, oh you know, try to impress God or you know, try to do good works. No, he's saying, You must make every effort to enter and believe in me, to follow me. Now, three things happen when the door is closed. And we see three attempts by the people outside the door to try to get into the door. And it's really sad and it's really pathetic, right? Because the first thing they do is they knock and they plead at the door. Sir, open the door for us. But Jesus answers, I don't know you or where you come from. See, the important thing is not to say that I know Jesus you know, or I know of Jesus but it's whether Jesus knows you. See, that's the most important thing. It is not that, oh, you know, I know of Jesus, I've read the Bible, I, I know Jesus. The thing is, does Jesus know you? And Jesus only knows you if you've made every effort to enter through that narrow door, if you've repented, if you've borne fruit, if you've stuck with Jesus through hard times, opposition and division, does Jesus know you? They next go on to say, in verse 26, Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I didn't know you, away you came from, away from me, all you do is... Now what the, the crowd was saying, or what the people outside the door were saying, was look, we know you in terms of physical contact and physical proximity. Uh, in the ancient world, you sat down and had a drink and a meal with someone, it showed that you, were, you had fellowship, table fellowship. But the problem was, they didn't entrust their lives and their salvation to Jesus. They didn't seek to reconcile with God by following Jesus. And I think that's so, uh, such an important lesson for us, isn't it? Because, uh, especially not so much for this service, but you know, if you're a young person, just because your parents are Christian doesn't mean that you, know, you will be saved. Just because you have Christian friends doesn't mean that you'll be saved. Uh, just because you come to church and listen to sermon doesn't mean that you'll be saved. You need a personal faith in Jesus. You need to make every effort to enter through that narrow door. You need to make the effort to repent and to bear fruit. Now, I want you to come back to the parable in chapter 12, verse 58 to 59. Can you please do that? Just look at your Bibles. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 58 to 59, and there's this really interesting thing that happens here. Oh, it's interesting to me anyway. I hope it's interesting to you. If you look at 58 to 59, you can't see it in the English but the you there is—they is, are all singular. As you go, you as an individual person, Andrew, right? You know, Robert, uh, uh Koi, It says you, not you as a group of people, as the crowd, as you as an individual are going with your adversary to the magistrate. Try hard to be reconciled on the way or your adversary may drag you, singular, off to the judge and the judge throw you, singular, over to the prison officer and the officer throw you, singular, into the prison. I tell you, again singular, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. See, we are not, we are not, we, we, each of us, each of us individually will have to stand before God on the last day and account for the actions in our life. We cannot say, well you know, my wife was a Christian, my father was a Christian, my Bible study groups, they were all Christian. My best friend was a Christian. I heard of Jesus. I listened to Jesus. I know about Jesus. I sat in Bible study groups. At the end of the day, we, all of us as individuals, stand before God. And God says that it is not a physical proximity, it is not a spatial proximity that counts. Each of us individually must put our faith in Jesus, follow Jesus in hard times, bear fruit in repentance before Him. That is what it means to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And this is what else Jesus says when He rebukes them. He says, "Look away from me, all you evil doers." See, some people say to me, "Oh, you know, I'm a good person, but I don't want to follow Jesus. I'm a good person." But I don't believe in Jesus. Well, in Jesus' eyes, you can do all the good you want. But if you do not recognize the Savior and God who comes from heaven, you are still an evildoer. In the final response, in verse 28, Jesus says, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Now in verse 28, gnashing and weeping of teeth will be the final result of those who cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think of the saddest day of your life to date. I know it's a difficult thing to do, but think of the saddest day of your life to date. Uh, I know some of you have a very blessed life and you don't really have many sad days, but just think of the saddest day that you have and I want you to multiply it by, I don't know, a thousand, ten thousand, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the words which are used to describe indescribable loss. No, it's it's, it's the pain, the deep anguish which comes when you realize that you've lost something really, really valuable. And that's what Jesus is saying here. At the very end, in verse 28, when the people stand outside the doors of the kingdom of God and they look inside and they realize that they will never, ever, in the rest of eternity, be able to enter into the kingdom of God, that is how they feel. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in conclusion, what are the times that we live in? We live in the time between the cross of salvation of Jesus Christ and the fire of judgment when Jesus comes. Jesus died on the cross to bring salvation and he desires again to come to bring the fires of judgment. And the window of opportunity is very, very small between these two things where you can Reconcile yourself, yourself as an individual, to God, the Judge. It is measured in a journey from your house to the courthouse. It is measured in a single season in the life of a tree. And because of that, few will be saved, but many will be condemned. So which will you be? Will you be outside the door, looking in to the Kingdom of God, for the rest of eternity, weeping and gnashing your teeth or will you be inside the Kingdom of God where there will be rejoicing? Jesus says, make the right call, make the right judgement, repent, turn back to God, bear fruit in keeping repentance, make every effort to hold on to Jesus. I remember uh, one year I went back to Australia and I met up with uh, the husband of a, a very go- good friend of my wife. And he was like some uh, adventurer guy that you watch on uh, TV. La. I can't remember, what's the adventurous guy again? The guy, huh? No, not James Bond. Uh, no, not uh. oh, Stephen. No, no, I mean, uh But like, okay, he's like that guy, what's the guy who goes to all these different places and survives? Oh, Bear girls, that's right, he's like Bear girls. Anyway, he was telling me, and he was really amazing, right? He was really amazing. He told me how he kayaked, okay, just think about this for a moment, he kayaked from Hobart to mainland Australia. I mean, that's, I mean, that's like crazy, okay? That's just, it's just crazy. If you ever can think of it, you go look at the, the map, he, he kayaked from, I mean, I can't even kayak, I don't know off the east coast of Singapore, but imagine kayak from Hobart to Australia, mainland Australia. So anyway, he had a friend, Uh, who kayaked from New Zealand to Australia, okay? So these people obviously can't afford the plane fares or whatever they But then, what happened was, during this journey, where he kayaked from New Zealand to Australia, his kayak capsized and he lost his supplies, he lost his satellite phone and GPS system, and his boat was taking water. A helicopter came and wanted to rescue his friend, and at least give his friend a satellite phone and GPS. But the friend said, no. Right, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm nearly there. I'm going to keep going. But as a result, his friend died. And he left behind a wife and I think a child. And I, when, I, when I think of that, I think it's so sad, isn't it? Because here was this man who was doomed. He was really doomed. There was no way he could make it. Boat taking water, no supplies, satellite phone gone, no GPS, right? And he had a small, tiny window of opportunity to get rescued. The helicopter was there, right? That was the opportunity, that was the time to be saved. But he just kept going and he never made it. And I think that that's exactly the same as what Jesus is saying, is that what are the times that that we live in? We have this tiny sliver of opportunity to be reconciled with God. We have this opportunity where we cannot save ourselves, we cannot reconcile ourselves, but but Jesus has come to save us. And Jesus is saying, look, these are the times that we live in. Make the right judgment. Make the right call. Repent. Bear fruit. Hold on to Jesus, even through difficult times. So what call will you make for yourself? Because each of us have to stand before God individually at the last day. Well, I hope for each and every one of us that we have made the right call. That we will repent. That we will continually repent. We will continually bear fruit. We will always hold on to Jesus even in difficult times. And that on that very last day, none of us will be outside that door knocking away and and weeping and gnashing our teeth trying to get in because that will be a time where the opportunity was lost. It was too late. And you cannot enter anymore. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray that we will recognize the times that we live in, that we will hear and heed the warning that Jesus gives in so many different ways to so many different people, that the time is short, that the need is urgent, that we are in desperate need to be saved. We need to be reconciled with you now. We pray for each and every person here individually that indeed they have repented and turned back to you, that they are bearing fruit in light of this repentance and that they will continue to hold on to your son Jesus even through difficulty and division. We pray that we will all enter into the kingdom of God, that we have all made every effort to enter through that narrow door and that none of us will be outside your kingdom on that last day when Jesus comes again with the fires of judgment. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.